Just over half a century has passed since the end of one of the most gruesome series of murders to ever take place in the German Federal Republic. The small town of Lungenburg, a medieval village preserved mostly intact, is located on the Dialbach Valley. It's surrounded by meadows, pastures, a stream and a forest. It's nothing to walk past an old air raid shelter on the Hegerstrasse without even noticing. Years ago, the entrance was closed over with concrete, but those who were around between 1962 and 1966 know that four of the most hideous, heinous, and cruel murders in criminal history took place in that bunker. Not far from the Hegerstrasse air raid tunnel, there's a sign which reads, 10-minute walk to Haus Senderblick restaurant. This is where a steep footpath ends, which Jürgen Barsch would take on any night that he crept down the slope from where he lived with his parents to the scene of his crimes. Jürgen kept a set of clothes hidden in a concrete tube nearby, which he would change into after he had snuck out of his basement bedroom window. Four boys aged between 8 and 13 years would become his victims. It was almost five, however, on June 18, 1966, Peter Frieser was able to free himself from where he'd been tied up and led police to the old air raid shelter. Leaving the boy alive was the killer's undoing, but what is it that led the 19-year-old, nicknamed the Fairground Killer, to commit these horrific murders? Overnight, Jürgen Barsch, someone unremarkable, almost invisible due to his long working days, very little free time, no social life or friends, became one of the most infamous people in German criminal history. Welcome to Veritas True Crime Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Veritas True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse. Thanks very much for joining me. I want to give you a quick content warning here and now. This episode contains graphic details of child abuse, rape, murder and mutilation, masturbation and pedophilia. During my research, I found many facts which I decided to omit from the episode, mostly because they didn't have any effect on the continuity. However, I've shared an extensive amount of premium content, if you're interested, on Patreon. Part of my research for this case, and it was probably the most in-depth I've ever gone for a case before, included reading letters written by the subject over a number of years, and in German. I've translated quite a lot of the content for you to read through. Some of the details in the letters were musings from Jürgen, and I didn't feel that it was relevant. Some of the information was graphic details of his crimes, his miserable upbringing in life. I haven't censored any of the details. Some people may find the information triggering and confronting. So as always, discretion is advised. I had planned to drop hints through the podcast to let you know to fast forward sections, but as I went along, I felt that if I did that, it would take away from the story and I would spend too much time telling you to fast forward. If you feel like you'll be affected by any of the information in this episode, I suggest that you don't listen. I've edited the content in a way that we will jump around just a little bit. Some people might find this helpful if they want to skip over content that makes them feel uncomfortable. Feel free to have a look at the transcript on the show's website at veritastruecrime.com. Have you had a chance to visit me on Facebook yet? 
I'd love it if you'd stop by and click like on the page. Just search in Facebook for Veritas True Crime Podcast. Maybe you'd also like to leave a review if you've enjoyed listening to my episodes so far. By liking the page, you'll have access to reminders when there are new episodes, as well as seeing some additional content that doesn't make it on air. Photos from the cases that we're talking about and much more. I've mentioned it just before, but maybe you'd also like to visit my Patreon page for premium content. There's a poll on that page where you can vote for the kinds of true crime stories that you'd like me to tell you. There will be photos from crime scenes, extras from our stories, and soon I'll hold some live Q&As, like a meet and greet. I look forward to seeing you there. The link is on the episode page for Patreon. A quick little shout out to all of you in California and Texas. You were my top listeners this past month, and I just want you to know that I appreciate you, so thank you. I appreciate everyone who joins me for each episode on this strange little nerdy true crime journey that we're on, and I look forward to getting to know you all as we go. No matter where you are, I'm grateful that you've chosen my podcast to listen to today. Without further ado, let's talk about this week's case. Jürgen Bartsch, the Fairground Killer. Born Karl-Heinz Sadrzinski on November 6, 1946, in post-war Essen, West Germany, to Friedrich Sadrzinski and Elizabeth Anna Liedke. Friedrich worked in the mines. The couple lived in Essen on the Kattenbergerstrasse number 315. They were poor. Karl-Heinz was separated from his mother immediately. She left the hospital and Karl-Heinz behind. Just weeks later, she died from tuberculosis. There was no surrogate available for Karl Heinz, and he spent the first months of his life being looked after by nurses. It's unknown what happened to Karl Heinz's father. The municipal hospital had been largely destroyed during the recently ended World War II and was going to take years for reconstruction, so the nursery had been given a temporary home in the state insurance convalescent home. Although he was given protection, this environment did not nurture or offer him any love and care as a baby would get from their parents or a primary reference person like a mother or father. One of the nurses, Annie, looked after Karl Heinz, was still working at the hospital in the 1970s. During an interview with Jürgen's biographer, she described him as a ray of sunshine. She said he had dark hair, full lips and dark eyes, that beamed at her whenever she would enter the room. He was, according to her, always blissful. She said that all of the nurses were in love with him and there was a lady, Mrs. Bash, who would come by and check on him once a week. He was already six months old when Annie started working at the hospital in the nursery. It was later during psychiatric assessment and even after his death that experts say this upbringing in those first months was the basis of his sadistic personality. Gerhard and Gertrude Barsch, a wealthy self-made couple, had been coming to the hospital in search of a baby to adopt. They'd paid the nursery extra to keep him there to avoid the authorities placing him in an orphanage. Gertrude was particularly concerned with Karl Heinz's welfare and what would happen to him if he had left. When they first met Karl Heinz, they found him to be charming and immediately decided that they would adopt him into their family. 
The authorities were making life difficult for Gerhard and Gertrude to adopt Karl Heinz because of concern about where he had come from. Nurse Annie said that Karl Heinz was believed to have been born out of wedlock, just like his mother had been. The father was apparently unknown. It only took me a little bit of research for me to find the marriage record of his parents and the birth certificate which has both parents' names on it. They were married in 1943 in Essen. Gerhard and Gertrude Barsch had been longing to adopt a child, particularly Gerhard who was hoping for a boy who would follow in his footsteps and work in the butcher shop business on the Gutestrasse. Later he was always trying to make a real man out of him. After the war, Gerhard had gone to Denmark and returned to Germany with a small pair of patent leather shoes. Gertrude was described as completely overprotective and emotionally withdrawn by Jürgen's German-American journalist friend, Paul Moore. Paul is the author of Jürgen Barsch's Self-Portrait of a Child Murderer book. Gertrude had met Karl Heinz because she'd been in the hospital for a total hysterectomy. Psychoanalyst Renee A. Spitz has written extensively about children left in hospitals and says that they develop faster than other children and are more social. This certainly attracted Gertrude and Gerhard Barsch to the young boy. Finally, in 1947, when Karl Heinz was 11 months old, he finally went to live with Gertrude and Gerhard. He would now be known as Jürgen Barsch. The house where the Barsch family lived was on a steep hill in the Glubenentat settlement near Langenberg. Unfortunately, to those who knew her, Gertrude was known as the Cleaning Devil. And although Jürgen had been potty trained at this point, the trauma of being taken from the only home he had ever known, adjusting to a new surroundings, he started to wet and soil himself again. This disgusted Gertrude. It was around this time that acquaintances of the Barsch family began to notice bruises on the babies. Gertrude always had a new story for the marks. People, however, were not convinced. It was also recorded that at one time, a heavily depressed Gerhard Barsch confessed to a friend that he was considering a divorce from Gertrude, saying, she beats the child so much, I just can't take it anymore. There was another incident where Gerhard was leaving his friend in a hurry and said, I have to go home or she will kill my child. Gertrude and Gerhard would often argue. Gertrude was quite an abusive person toward her husband as well as to Jürgen. During his trial, Jürgen said that they would often yell and scream at each other and his mother had once contemplated divorcing his father as well. She'd even gone as far as consulting a lawyer about what her options were. Gerhard would often sit on the bed and cry. He described his mother as overweight and very, very clean obsessed. She would often throw things. In the book General Criminology by Anna Ava Brownack, she writes, In all probability, the boy was already impaired in his capacity for bonding when he was given the opportunity for a stable human relationship for the first time at 11 months. At the very least, this last change must have disturbed him. To develop his ability to bond, he would have needed an extraordinarily warm-hearted and generous mother, instead of the narrow-minded woman like Mrs. Barsh, who was no longer young, had never had children of her own, considered herself fond of children because she had fallen in love with an angel and suffered a severe shock when he revealed himself to be a small human animal with a vigorously active abdomen. This experience was probably a real threat to Mrs. Barsh. Jürgen wrote in letters on more than one occasion that no matter what they did to him, no matter how they didn't show it, he knew that his parents loved him. 
Between 1968 and 1976, Paul, Moore, and Jürgen had written letters to each other. In those letters, Jürgen gave insights into his catastrophic childhood. Behind the facade of the pretty family picture shown to the world from the butcher shop, his life and his inner feelings. One of Jürgen's lawyers, Muller, had told him that Paul was psychoanalytically trained and a professional, but Paul corrected that mistake. Obviously, this didn't bother Jürgen because they continued to write and they sent more than 250 letters to each other over those years. The very first letter that Jürgen sent to Paul Moore was dated 23rd of January 1968. This is how it reads. Dear Mr. Moore, First of all, my heartfelt thanks for your dear card on January 9th, 1968, and also for the Christmas telegram of December 24th, 1967, which made me very happy. I didn't feel much of Christmas and New Year's this year, and even if I had wanted to, I wouldn't have been able to write a letter at that time. I haven't really recovered to this day. Why? I want to describe it to you, not to arouse sympathy, but because it may be of interest to you since you've been trained psychoanalytically, as Herr Moller has told me. My biggest mistake was probably summoning up all my strength during the whole trial in order to be able to hold out at all costs. And I was repeatedly told that I had unbelievable staying power, but that was ent entirely true. It was just the iron will that made me endure everything for so long. That's probably why the picture of the callous, ice-cold Jürgen Barsch, who actually had every effort not to fall over, came about. I only realized too late, as is always the case, that I had not survived the whole thing physically and mentally without damage. Namely, on the evening of December 15, that was the last day of his trial, I suddenly had the feeling that I couldn't breathe, and that I would suffocate. When it became unbearable, I asked for a doctor, which I had never done before. A paramedic came, Herr Schultz, who I got along with very well. He noticed that I had a very high heart rate, probably because of fear, and was there twice more during the night. However, the shortness of breath persisted, although I was too stupid for, to call for the doctor again in the next few days. Jürgen's adoptive parents strictly forbade friends and family who knew that he was adopted from telling Jürgen that he wasn't their biological child. He wasn't allowed to play with other children because his mother was afraid that he would get dirty. She was so fixated on cleanliness, a symptom of her obsessive compulsive disorder, that Gertrude demanded everything be clean and tidy in the home. Jürgen was completely under her control. Clothes were required to be folded and placed on shelves with military precision. She would choose his clothes for him to wear daily, right up until his arrest. Gertrude forced her extreme obsession with cleanliness on Jürgen. If necessary, she did so with physical violence. His mother would bathe him right up until he was 19 years of age and would use the opportunity to sexually abuse him. Jürgen said during one interrogation after his arrest that his mother washed his genitals and that one day he just accepted that this was going to happen. He was never allowed to have any friends in the home, with the exception of one boy. Jürgen liked him very much, but he severely beat him up after the pair had been scuffling with each other in a friendly fashion. There was no apparent reason for the assault. The few friendships that Jürgen did maintain over the years all had an element of homosexual play, which included ejaculation. Growing up, he said that his parents never had time for him and they never played games or nurtured him. 
they were always too busy with their shop. He was abused and beaten throughout his childhood by his mother, and he wrote in a letter that his father never physically abused him. Jürgen was required to be at home every night by 7pm. He would have dinner and then was required to watch TV with his parents in their bed. The ritual consisted of him bathing and then changing his clothes in his parents' bedroom. He never had a closet or wardrobe of his own. And then he was made to lie down on the bed between his parents to watch TV until bedtime around 9pm. He was regularly physically abused by his mother, sometimes being beaten up in front of his father who worked as a butcher, in the same room where he would be cutting up carcasses for the shop. During a psychiatric evaluation, he recalled a time in 1965 that his mother had thrown a beer bottle at him inside their home, because he disobeyed her. Later, he was in the butcher shop and was being forced to help clean up. It was a Tuesday, because that's where Mrs. Barsh would clean all of the counters. Jürgen was required to help. She was unhappy with the way that he had done the job, and they started to argue with each other when he said he was finished. She picked up and threw a large knife at him. Jürgen screamed at her, so that's how it is, to which she replied, yes, that's how it is, and spat in his face. After that, his mother ran out of the store to a phone and called the welfare office, threatening Jürgen that Herr Bitter, who was head of the Department of Children and Families at the time, would come and take him back where he came from. Jürgen was so distressed by the occurrence that he ran to the toilet and cried. He had scars from years of physical abuse. For six years, Jürgen would be locked in a basement cellar, which would become his bedroom as well as his personal hell. At the tender age of eight years old, Jürgen was raped by his 13-year-old cousin. He was told by the cousin to lie down on the couch and unzip his trousers. The cousin said that this was a reward for allowing him to use Jürgen's headphones. The cousin went on to be a Catholic child educator and interestingly was never called at the trial as a witness. Jürgen didn't know what he wanted to do when he finished school, so at nine years of age, his father put a tailor-made butcher's apron on him for carnival and said, then you'll become a butcher. However, Jürgen also had talked about going to university. At around 10 years of age, Jürgen had become rebellious and was disturbing the Barsch's way of life at home, so he was sent to school at the Wiesegrund in Bonn. During his school years, he had a nemesis who he called Fat Beckman. Beckman recalled that Jürgen always had a short temper. He said it was fun for the bullies to see Jürgen kicking and soon it turned into biting. Jürgen would throw away his sandwiches and Beckman said he most likely learned how to swear from the people who were in the construction site where Jürgen would throw his lunchbox. His parents didn't believe that the school in Wissergrund was str strict enough, when in actual fact this was where Jürgen accidentally discovered that he was adopted. This would have infuriated his parents, so in 1958, at age 12, they enrolled him at the Marienhausen, a Catholic boarding school for boys. It was while he was at home from Marienhausen, the first time, that Jürgen discovered his cave, the air raid shelter. He'd been exploring with other children from the area and they came across it. He lit a newspaper on fire and they went inside. While in there, he called, help, and everybody ran screaming from the hole. Everyone except Jürgen, who stayed a little longer, before going home to fetch a candle and returning to the shelter to explore more, making it his home, his sanctuary. 
At age 13, he was raped four times by the choir teacher, Father Pulitz. The kids called him Papu. Sometimes he was raped by other students. Papu was known for beating some of the students frequently and violently. During choir practice, he would turn up the music so loud and scream furiously at the students. He would then randomly hit a student, foaming at the mouth as he did so. Jürgen recalled that the students were given a poem to learn in one afternoon. In class the following morning, Papu would call on the students one at a time as they trembled in their seats, his cane at the ready. He would tell them that they needed to recite the poem by heart. If one of them didn't know the part that they were called on, he would hit the student so hard with the cane that it broke. The beatings would always be accompanied by incomprehensible rage and the foaming at the corners of his mouth. When he was 13, Papu chaperoned the children at camp. Jürgen became violently ill. He developed such a high fever that Papu took him to his own room in the inn and put him on the second bed. When Jürgen's chills persisted, the priest took him from there and put him in his own bed. He threw his arms around me like a mother or a father, said Jürgen. As he hugged him, Papu slipped his hand down the back of Jürgen's pants and stroked him. He then did the same thing from the front and tried to masturbate the child. Jürgen believed that it wasn't possible because of his high fever. When he was asked whether there had been any further actions, Jürgen said that a noticeable amount of energy, nothing else happened. The name of the priest was missing from the list of 39 witnesses who were called to be witness at the Wuppertal trial. It was only after his first trial that Jürgen decided to share more, much more, about the priest with Paul Moore in his letters. After the night on the camping trip, Papu never made any special concessions or treated Jürgen differently, unlike the main soprano singer in the choir. He would beat Jürgen regularly as before. To keep him quiet, however, Papu threatened to kill Jürgen if he ever said anything. Jürgen was taken to hospital the next day and was admitted for around two to three weeks, but after being discharged, his parents, despite his objections, took him back to the Marienhausen school. He ran away the very next day, traveling by train to Dusseldorf, and then with the last of his money by bus to Velbert. He then walked three hours back to his home. By the time he arrived at his parents' house, he was sure by then the school had told them he'd run away and his parents would be furious. He didn't dare go inside. Instead, he went to the woods near his house and he hid there from his parents until dusk. Someone must have seen him there because he ended up seeing his mother in the forest calling out to him. Defeated, he went home with her and says, that began the seemingly never-ending stream of abuse, yelling and arguing. Before the incident with Papu at Marienhausen, Jürgen said that he had never felt homesick before, but after running away and his parents bringing him back, he started to feel extremely homesick. He couldn't imagine staying there anymore and he couldn't face going back. Much to his dismay, the school said that they would give him another chance, so his parents took him back right away. Jürgen wrote a letter the next morning to Papu telling him that he couldn't stay there and he was leaving immediately. And if his parents brought him back, he would leave again. When he was 14, he went to live and work as an apprentice with one of his father's colleagues, a master butcher, Herr Loon. He was given board and lodging, but he worked for absolutely no money. Jürgen recalled that Herr Loon would make fun of him and said that he was a mama's boy hanging from his mother's apron strings. 
Throughout his childhood, he was meek and mild and often at the mercy of bullies and attackers. It was in between the harassment, bullying, and sexual abuse that Jürgen developed violent fantasies. When you see photos of Jürgen, he's clean-cut, well-groomed, and looks like what would have been called the boy next door. But he no longer wanted to be the pretty boy. He wanted to be in control and have power, rather than being a victim. Even during his trial, he was described as handsome, discreetly dressed, lovable, and sympathetic looking. Jürgen didn't turn to killing immediately. However, he was very young when he started his life of violence and crime. He had already been sexually abusing and tormenting young boys. In June 1961, he put his violent fantasies into practice for the first time. Jürgen lured a boy from the neighborhood into his den. He beat him violently, tore off his clothes, and forced him into sexual play. The young boy told his father, who then confronted Gerhard and Gertrude, but also went to the police. Jürgen denied everything to the police, but later confessed the truth to his father, who told him that there were doctors he could go to. Jürgen said that he was scared and nothing ever came of it. The police ended up dropping the matter, putting it down to childish horseplay. All of the boys that Jürgen lured to his air raid shelter, or his cave as he called it, were scared. The only person who felt at home there was Jürgen. This was his safe place. It was his realm. It was to there that he would drive, lead, drag his victims, and his sadistic paradise unfolded. Jürgen was afraid of his mother, but he was not afraid of killing. His life was dictated by his mother's timetable. He committed his crimes within the confines of her demands of him. If ever he was late, he would have to make up excuses for his whereabouts. He knew that other children wouldn't play there, so he could make himself at home, and he did. He hid several blank pistols in the cave, even though at first he didn't have any intentions of using guns. He had a passion for them, and he wanted to have them there. He also had a live 9mm pistol, but was never able to get any ammo for the gun. He'd bought it from another child who lived on the estate near his parents for 30 Deutschmark. Next, there was Axel O. The two already knew each other, though Axel was only 10 years old. Jürgen was 13. There'd already been a history of the pair scrapping with each other, and Jürgen had previously masturbated Axel's genitals. This one day, Jürgen lured Axel into the forest where he forced him to undress in front of him and lay down over Jürgen's lap, with his bum exposed. Jürgen promised that he would only hit him 13 times, but blow by blow, each one harder than the last didn't seem to end. Eventually, Jürgen had to stop because his hand was aching. He didn't kill Axel, but he threatened that he would if he told anyone, and he left him so that he was able to escape. Axel raised the alarm about the assault, and Jürgen was questioned by the police once again. The matter, again, ended up being dropped after Jürgen said that they'd been fooling around and they had just fought. After this particular incident, Jürgen often returns to and wanders around in the forest near the street, waiting for nice boys. Jürgen has a type. He would only attack skinny or slender boys with dark hair, nice eyes, and who were sympathetic toward him. He was never interested in boys with freckles or red hair or who were overweight. He was only interested in boys of a certain age as well, between 9 and 13 years old or younger, because as he said, anyone aged 15 to 17 was a grandpa. Stalking through the woods, he came across a number of potential victims, but every time at the all-important moment to strike, 
he ended up getting so frightened that he would let the boys go and nothing would happen. Until his second victim, known only as Frank B, was enticed by Jürgen into his bunker. By this time, his masturbation fantasies and the desire to cut were high. He'd purchased razor blades and they were ready to use. He said at his trial that he had bought them from a vending machine for 50 pfennigs. He and Frank started to tussle and fight and Jürgen shouted, I'm going to cut you with a razor blade. Fortunately for Frank, Jürgen's inhibitions got the better of him and he didn't follow through. He threatened the boy with death, however, if he told anyone and allowed him to escape. Until Jürgen's first trial some seven years later, Frank had never told anyone about the experience, not even his parents. Jürgen, however, did confess to his father about Frank, downplayed the events to make them sound much less serious than they were. Mrs. Barsh probably suspected more than the simple childishness that she had put it down to, but neither of his parents spoke about it with him again. Later, he entices a younger boy next door into his air raid shelter den. There, Jürgen beats him, tears his clothing from him, and forces him to play sexual games. The boy's father, Beck, goes to the police. This means that Jürgen is no longer able to seek out boys within his village where they live, and he needs to widen the perimeters of his search. On a summer day in 1961, Jürgen is 14 years old. He meets six-and-a-half-year-old H. Jürgen gave H 15 pfennigs to go to the drugstore and buy a candle so they could visit the air raid shelter together. During his interrogation, Jürgen said about the candle, a flashlight would have been too bright, too sober. A candle gives off a round, warm light. This is more romantic. It's hard to find the right words. Married couples have something like that with certain actions, referring to sexual relations between married couples. When pressed about this notion, Jürgen said that he had read about it in a magazine. However, during the trial, he once again alluded to candlelight and married couples. His parents insisted that he had his own room from the start. However, when Jürgen was asked to elaborate, it was discovered that for the first five or six years, he was actually sharing his parents' bedroom, maybe even their bed with them. Although he said he couldn't remember ever seeing his parents having sex, or as he called it, the primal scene, a psychoanalyst said that it was very likely he had repressed any memories of something like that. Jürgen said of life in his parents' house that there was hardly a day without shouting, mostly about money. Little H and Jürgen entered the air raid shelter together with their candle. Inside, Jürgen threatened H, but he didn't go any further. He later recalled that while he was threatening the boy, his pulse was racing and his knees were shaking and he felt like he might faint. It meant that little H was able to escape to safety, however, he also never told anyone about the experience, not even his parents. The next victim was T. There's not a lot of information about T. We don't know how old he was or where Jürgen found him. Jürgen had lured T into the forest and tried to attack him. However, T was much stronger than Jürgen had believed and he had to give up on his plan. T told his mother who showed up at the Barsh butcher shop and complained to Mrs. Barsh about the incident. Jürgen's mother begged her to stay quiet and not to go to the police, saying something along the lines of, we've already had enough problems with this child. And with that, she paid T 20 marks from Jürgen's pocket money. 
20 Deutschmark in 1961 is the equivalent of 123 US dollars in 2022. Around September or October 1960, Jürgen's first sexual encounter up to ejaculation was with his friend that he'd made from school. He lived in the same village as Jürgen and his parents. Detlef's parents and Jürgen's were friends. Detlef Duren, a loner just like Jürgen, had started at Marienhausen a little after him. One day, Jürgen found him crying in the corner and asked where he came from. Detlef explained that he was homesick, where he was from, and the friendship between the two developed from there. The pair remained friends until around the seventh grade. Jürgen and Detlef were close, but Jürgen had no idea how to handle personal relationships and would become furious and jealous if Detlef would so much as look at or speak to another boy. By his own admission, they were on again, off again almost daily. When they broke up for good, Jürgen prayed in church that they would get back together. The pair had even run away from the Marienhausen school together. While away, Jürgen tried to push Detlef in front of an oncoming train. Detlef was so angry with him for a while after, but they did sleep together in a trailer in Gowarshausen. Jürgen tried to initiate sexual contact with Detlef on two occasions, but nothing had happened. On the night before they were returned home, the pair slept in a barracks. Jürgen stayed awake while Detlef had gone to sleep. He tried to unbutton Detlef's trousers, but he stirred and growled and then turned over, so nothing happened. Later though, Detlef allowed Jürgen to masturbate him to climax, but when they finished, he threatened to tell Mr. Bash unless Jürgen paid him, which he did. This was the start of a twice-weekly payday for Detlef. The sexual adventures between the two involved partial strangulation by Jürgen. At one time, Jürgen confided in Detlef that he would enjoy doing something similar with a younger boy between 8 and 13 years old. He asked if Detlef would join in on the adventure, offering to pay him 300 Deutschmarks, which is around 773 US dollars, to help him. The pair had gone out together on about six or seven different occasions, but they were completely unsuccessful. It was during this time that Jürgen appeared to be struggling with his homosexuality and had made several attempts to push himself toward being a heterosexual. He sought out prostitutes in Essen, making around 12 visits at different times, and even had a friend who was good at drawing make him pictures of naked females to accentuate their feminine features, seeing if this would change his urges. Later, he said that the discomfort he felt was the same as if a straight person had ever tried to have a homosexual encounter. He also attempted to pursue a relationship with a female neighbor, Heidi. He had liked her quite a bit, but it was no good. Heidi was 15 and Jürgen 17 at the time. The pair had kissed and there was heavy petting. Jürgen asked if she wanted to have sex with him in the woods, but Heidi said no, worried about what her mother would say. Jürgen didn't press her and he later went on to say that he was only doing this out of some feeling of obligation to try and suppress the homosexual feelings that he'd been experiencing. He later said in letters that he was actually repulsed to the point of being sick at the thought of taking off Heidi's underwear. For the second time in his life, Jürgen found another friend, Victor. This was a guy who also lived in the same neighborhood. It was around the time that he started working for Herr Loon as the butcher's apprentice. There was a period of time that the pair were, as Jürgen put it, true friends, meaning that there was no sexual connotations. He wrote in his letters that he was head over heels in love with Victor. He never imagined hurting him. 
He said that he would have done anything for him. The pair would read Mickey Mouse books together and Jürgen had a record player which they played the hit Lollipop on, Ad Nauseam, as well as Nana Muscuri and others. After some time, Jürgen offered money to Victor for him to lie down and act dead for half an hour. Victor accepted the payment. Victor was blindfolded with a black scarf and Jürgen undressed him. They masturbated together, but that was the end of their first experience. Jürgen paid Victor 50 Deutschmarks for the experience. Victor, however, kept coming back, so Jürgen started to offer less money each time. The pair were together around six or seven times before Jürgen's arrest. They would masturbate each other, attempted anal sex, but were unable to finish. They never kissed, and Jürgen said in his trial that even though he'd had relationships that had gone much further, and this one was much closer than one he'd had with Detlef, he'd never been shown any tenderness by anyone during any of his sexual experiences. Rewind to 1961. Jürgen had left school for good. He'd been prowling almost daily looking for a victim to satisfy his sadistic needs. Finally, at just 15 years old, Jürgen also gave in to his fantasies and graduated from merely undressing, touching, beating and frightening young boys to killing. March 31, 1962, Jürgen pretended that he was a detective in order to gain the trust of Klaus Jung. He was just eight years old. During his conversation with Klaus, he promised to pay him for completing a mission. Jürgen took him by car to the tunnel of the nearby, nearby air raid shelter. He sexually molested and killed Klaus with a pistol by bashing him repeatedly over the head. Later on, he threw the pistol away. He partially buried Klaus's mutilated corpse and left it there to rot. Astonishingly, Jürgen tells of his early adventures when he killed Klaus. He writes, I would go through the basement door. My room key fit the outer cellar door, but only I knew that. Back then, I didn't have any real clothes on. I only ever went out in my bathrobe, pyjamas and slippers, and I kept this stuff on the whole time. I paid great attention not to ruin my clothes, but one time I messed up my slippers from the street, tunnel, ditch and way back home through the dirt roads. They were so dirty that I secretly cleaned them when I got home in the morning. Once I couldn't clean them properly and my mother noticed, but it was only once. I told her I dropped my flashlight out of the window. It had rained heavily that night, so I told her I got out of bed to get it. It was that easy. Around a hundred yards from his parents' home, out of view of the house, there was a large concrete tube intended for use by road construction workers. It lay at the beginning of a dirt track that led to Jürgen's shelter. Jürgen used the concrete tube to hide clothes. On his adventures at night, he would wait for his parents to fall asleep and then sneak out of the house through the basement window in his pyjamas. Jürgen would change clothes at the tube and then disappear. Sometimes he would do this with or without his friend Detlef and later with Victor. At one time, Jürgen had confessed to his boyfriend Victor about his first crime, killing Klaus Jung. He believed that he wanted to commit further murders with someone else because he wasn't able to do it on his own anymore. He said to Victor, we can kill other boys. When I get home, you'll be waiting for me downstairs. I'll bring a kid and we can take it to the air raid shelter and kill it. 
Nothing came of it though. He did try hard to convince him. There was an incident where Jürgen had thought that maybe he would have to kill Victor after he confessed about that murder. He might have been regretting telling him about the, cl- the crimes, and in an attempt to prove to Victor that it actually wasn't true, he took him to an air raid shelter. Unfortunately, the body of Jürgen's first victim was buried there. Jürgen took his letter opener in his pocket just in case Victor uncovered the corpse. He didn't want to kill him because of his urges to kill. Jürgen said he would have only done so to protect him from becoming a victim of his urges. Victor ended the relationship between the two and they didn't speak for three years. There's a rather long gap between his first victim and the next. Jürgen said that he thought he would be able to get rid of his persistent desire to kill, but actually it only became stronger. Even though he didn't kill anyone, he was still luring boys to his cave and he would molest, rape or attack them in some way. He would threaten them with death death if they should tell anyone. He was out every week looking for new victims. In 1965, Jürgen got his driver's license. It wasn't going to be for a long time though. He'd started to become a heavy drinker. He and his friend Detlef would often drink until they were unconscious. At home, his parents would allow him only to have a glass or two of wine, but in secret, Jürgen was drinking a lot more and whenever he could. He said later that it was so he could hide from and forget himself. Jürgen would travel to Essen, Velbert, Neviges, Kastrup, Roxel, Bochum and further. Almost the entire Ruhr region and into the Bergisches Land. It's a low mountain region of western Germany near the Ruhr and along the river Rhine. Think Dusseldorf area. It's 16 minutes from Belgium and around 12 minutes to the Netherlands. He really wanted to go and drive to the fair and find boys there to talk to and try out his detective story on them. There was even a time that he considered taking out an advertisement in the newspaper to lure boys to him. On August 7, 1965, he was in Essen-Holsterhausen when he came across 13-year-old Peter Fuchs. Peter was walking around the village with a package. He'd gotten the wrong train and didn't know where he'd ended up, so he was asking people for directions. However, villagers there were not very helpful. One person directed him to the police station. Jürgen got out of his car and watched Peter following from a distance as he walked to the station. He went to walk in, he had one foot in the door but must have thought better of it and continued walking. Around 100 metres from the door of the police station, Jürgen spoke to him. Peter had been walking so much that he had an obvious limp. He was tired and hungry and Jürgen offered to help. He said he would take him where he needed to be. They went back to his car, but Jürgen didn't take him to his destination. He took him directly to his cave. On the way, he stopped in the woods and forced Peter to undress until he was completely naked. Jürgen tied him up, gagged him and left him lying on the ground in front of the car before picking him up and carrying him into the cave where he strangled him until he was dead. A couple weeks later on August 14, 1965, Jürgen went back to the parish fair in Velbert. The parish fairs were known for attracting homeless, poor folk from around the surrounding villages. Young boys would often be there, but to find one alone still took quite a bit of effort for Jürgen. He walked around and observed the people there and took a ride on the Dodgem cars. Then he approached a young boy who was on his own, Ulrich Kalweis. He asked him if he wanted to go with him. In his car, Jürgen had orders that needed to be delivered for the butcher shop, but he was unconcerned with them. 
Jürgen took 12-year-old Ulrich to the ghost train, fed him candy and snacks, and allowed him to ride on several other, other attractions, including the Dodgem cars. Eventually, Jürgen asked Ulrich if he wanted to come and make some money. He offered to pay him, but Ulrich declined the money, saying, No, you've already paid so much for me already. I don't want any money from you. He went willingly with Jürgen to the car. On the way, Jürgen tried to give Ulrich the 50-mark note, but the boy continued to refuse, and eventually Jürgen stuffed the note into Ulrich's pocket. Jürgen drove until eventually he stopped on a dirt road somewhere. Jürgen leaned over Ulrich, and the child attempted to escape through the car door. Unfortunately for him, the lock and the door handle had been installed incorrectly, and instead of pushing the lever down, it needed to be pushed up. Ulrich had no way of knowing this, but it meant he couldn't open the door. I knew it, I knew it, Ulrich screamed, later recounted by Jürgen in his confessions. He was screaming for help, but Jürgen was just too strong for him. He overpowered him and gagged him, forcing him out of the car to make him undress and then tied him up. Ulrich was crying and later told Jürgen that he was expected to be home by 7.30. He wanted to take the young boy to the cave, but instead he walked him out into a field and he said, be quiet, turn around now. He took a heavy hammer and he hit him hard on the head from behind. Ulrich screamed loud and Jürgen hit him again and again until he lost consciousness. Jürgen didn't know his name, but he read about it later in a newspaper. Jürgen assumed that Ulrich had died. He put him into the car and drove in the direction of Langenberg to his cave. That day, though, there were a lot of people walking past the opening to his air raid shelter, so he had to continue driving past and in the direction of the Langenberg tra transmission tower. He had to go up a winding road past a few farms. The floor of Jürgen's car was covered in blood. Without warning, the transmission of the van started to roar. There was something wrong. Jürgen had no choice. He had to turn around and head back. This disturbed him. He wasn't sure what he was going to do or where he would go in order to stay out of sight. He finally arrived at a parking lot. To his surprise, Ulrich stirred. He was still alive. Jürgen said, I hit it again, but out of horror more than anything. He still stirred, so I hit him again, and then he died. Jürgen drove past the cave a second and a third time and finally people had dispersed enough that he was able to take Ulrich inside the cave. He mutilated his corpse, cutting open his stomach and emptying his body cavity. Though he remained fully clothed, he laid himself down and masturbated next to Ulrich's corpse. And then he left. Unknown to Jürgen, there was a small break in the case of missing Ulrich. A self-timer was being used on the bumper cars that showed Ulrich and a young man together. The photo was sharp and clear. The newspaper, Die Neue Illustriert, published an appeal for information from the public. The page read, Do you know this man? This is a kidnapper. We want your help to catch him. In consultation with police and the public prosecutor, we are offering a reward of 20,000 Deutschmark to the person who hands over the kidnapper to the police. 20,000 marks for the head of the man who kidnapped three children. Take note, the creep is 17 to 23 years old, around 1.75 to 1.8 meters tall. Their efforts were unsuccessful. No one knew who the man was in the photo, but now there was a name for this monster, the Fairground Killer.
There were some protests from the people running the fairs. They believed that this advertisement was discrediting showmen and their parish fairs. Jürgen later wrote that he was struck by the fact that Ulrich had been wearing beautiful, clean, white underwear. He had just put them on that morning or even in the afternoon. He remembered that when he lived at home, he would change his underwear every day. His mother would ensure it. When he came home from living at Marienhausen, he would only change his underwear every second or third day. He said tearing Ulrich's underwear down was a very, very special pleasure for him. When he returned to his cave at another time, Jürgen was disgusted by the state of decay that Ulrich's body was in. The maggots were inside the abdominal cavity only. The back, buttocks and legs were all completely unchanged so far, so he turned the corpse over and suddenly became aroused again. He said in his interrogation, this child had a particularly beautiful body. He left Ulrich's body lying in a pit. He changed the position using a shovel and was pleased with the way it looked. He made sure not to look at the decaying, rotting side of the body, and so he was able to imagine him whole still. Jürgen slapped the corpse with the shovel several times, including at the top of his neck. He remarked that this was immensely pleasurable for him. He was disgusted with seeing a decaying corpse, but whenever he didn't look at the rotting flesh, he was comfortable. When asked by his lawyer about the smell, Jürgen said that he was completely unaffected by it because it was from a child. He believed that had he smelled this from a grown-up, he would be far less comfortable. Jürgen wrote in his letters that he couldn't remember the act of masturbating over any of his victims. However, he said if he had done so, it was always after they were dead and either partially or fully dismembered. Comforting. One night, Jürgen and Detlef had been drinking schnapps and wine and Williamsburn pear brandy. Jürgen finished around two-thirds of the bottle on his own. Detlef invited some friends to join them and this angered Jürgen, so he left. He drove to a bar and he drank two more glasses of wine. He got back in his car and was driving erratically, snaking back and forth on the road at around 80 miles per hour toward an overpass. The police saw him and stopped him and took his license immediately. This created new challenges for Jürgen. Without a car, he was unable to just move around freely finding boys and taking them to his cave. He soon overcame these challenges, resorting to riding the bus with his victims or using a taxi. He believed that he would continue to do this for years to come, so in losing his license, he felt that this was just a small break in his ongoing spree of kidnapping and murdering. Jürgen also started to take time to polish his story to lure boys to the cave. He spent weeks lurking around Porsche Platz in Essen and at the fairground developing the method that he would use to entice young boys to accompany him. He said, I'll tell them I'm a detective and I've found something fascinating hidden or, hidden or buried there. He would definitely come along voluntarily. Many boys ran away and others wanted nothing to do with it, but eventually his story worked. He later said, I felt silly talking to little boys, but I knew what I was going to do. I just tried and tried, and one day, it worked. In his letters, Jürgen wrote, The feeling isn't as if it's some kind of absolute, immediate compulsion. This is completely wrong. But it is also wrong to say that there's no compulsion at all. It's still a compulsion. It just varies in strength. It's something I deal with every day, and I feel bothered by it. 
it's an urge. It's not like saying, well, now you have nothing to do, just go around the next corner and kill someone. It's not that easy. It's just a feeling that drives you, and in the long run, you cannot let go of that feeling. Jürgen was drinking heavily in the weeks after losing his license, in a big way. He described the period as having a moral hangover. He would hide liquor in his car and in the bookcase so that there was always something for him to drink. He said that he was always tipsy and his mind was always foggy. The reality was that he wasn't able to drive anymore and that soon hit home. But he had a moment of clarity. He had a boost and out of sheer desperation he came up with a plan. He decided that he was going to buy a large trunk or suitcase, buy some ether and then take a cab in order to find boys. He decided he would take boys to a quiet alley, drug them, put them in the suitcase, put the suitcase in the taxi, and then unload them from the taxi at the air raid shelter, hoping and praying, of course, that the boy would still be drugged and unconscious when they arrived, so as not to arouse suspicion from the cab drivers. Ether was not easy to come by, but he had a pharmacy where he used to source chemicals for his magic tricks from time to time, so at first they didn't think much of it when he went and, bu- went and asked to buy it. After the third or fourth time of buying ether, however, the pharmacist said, who are you trying to stun with this? Jürgen needed to be careful. His plan was optimistic. He would stand in a corner and wet the handkerchief with the ether, but by the time he was chasing the boy, the ether would evaporate and would be ineffective. Jürgen left his parents' shop at 4pm on a Saturday. His parents assumed that he was going home. They didn't know that he was travelling around by taxi. They thought he was taking a tram or a bus. But Jürgen was stealing cash from the register at the shop to pay for the taxis. To travel to his cave by bus would have taken more than two to three hours. In a taxi, he was able to get himself to the cave within 35 minutes and it would cost him 20 Deutschmark. In his cave, he was hiding the giant suitcase. It was made from cardboard. It would have most likely fit an adult human inside. It was something that definitely caught everyone's attention, so Jürgen would make sure that no one was coming along the street, take the case out, order another taxi at the payphone. He would then travel to Hattingen, around 10 minutes from the cave. This would ensure that he would be there by 5.10pm. Once at Hattingen, he would go out looking for boys. He would search until around 6 or 6.30, but found that by then it was getting too late. All the boys that he was interested in had already gone home. In the pocket of his jacket, he had the ether bottle and cotton balls, and in the other side, he had shackles and candles. In the cave, he kept his knife. He rarely came across any children that he wanted. Whenever he would see one, he would follow them. When he felt that it was particularly dark or they were alone enough, he would put the suitcase in a corner, making sure to stay relatively close to where he'd left it. After putting the suitcase down, he would run after the child. If they would get more than 100 metres away, he would give up the chase. And this occurred 20 to 30 times unsuccessfully. Jürgen recalled the time that he'd followed a boy who had been lost. Before he was able to make a move though, an older woman came up to the boy and asked, what's the matter? Where are you going? Jürgen lost his nerve. Jürgen had started to keep a diary during this time. Not a diary in the traditional sense, writing thoughts and feelings. Instead, this was a specialized plan of how and when he wanted to commit his crimes. In the beginning of the diary, he had put three crosses to signify the three murders that he'd already committed. 
Then he wrote things for each day. For example, leave the shop at a certain time, take a taxi at such and such an hour, pick up the suitcase at such and such, and then arrive in Hattingen by a particular hour. Bring the boy into the cave by such and such, clean up and be home at such and such a time. Everything was written in mirror writing. This is a form of cipher similar to that of Leonardo da Vinci's notes for the famous Vitruvian man. Every three weeks on a Sunday from around 3pm until 7.30pm, Jürgen's parents insisted that he go with them to visit his grandmother. Jürgen was free on Mondays from around 5pm until 7.30. Tuesday he was unable to leave the shop or the house at all. On Wednesday he would leave the shop between 3 and 4 and was expected to report to his mother after his two and a half hour bus ride, but after that he was officially allowed to go out into the village. On Fridays, Jürgen attended vocational college until around 1.30pm. He didn't really have money for a taxi at the time, so he was forced to take the bus home. This allowed him only around 15 to 30 minutes to look for a boy. He had all afternoon on Saturday and sometimes he would be late home and started making excuses for his whereabouts. He was still also drinking heavily and this caused many an argument with his mother at home. One particular evening, he had had a beer. His mother tried to spank him. Jürgen grabbed her arms to stop her. And in true dramatic fashion, Mrs. Barsh ran to her bedroom, threw herself onto the bed, crying and screaming that she'd sacrificed her life for him and how dare he, etc. Throughout it all, Jürgen never hit his mother, no matter how pissed off he was. During the year before his arrest, Jürgen told his parents that he was a member of the Magic Circle Club for Amateur Magicians. They met every first Wednesday of the month. This allowed him from 6pm until midnight. He never attended the last few meetings. He said later that he felt it was his duty to search for boys, even though most of them would have been home by the late hours that he was out. He was just trying anything. Eventually, Jürgen decided to drop the suitcase method that he was using. He found that it was becoming too laborious. He was limited exclusively to using a taxi and used them like they were his own vehicle. He would travel to Essen, to Bochum and sometimes to Navigas and Velbert. Using taxis to travel to his hidden sanctuary was becoming dangerous, but he felt as though he had no other choice. In total, he approached around a hundred boys, in many cases from behind. Most of them were able to fight him off or run away. In 1968, Jürgen wrote a letter to his lawyer about Christmas and because of his miserable upbringing that his family never celebrated. To distract himself from knowing what other families were probably doing on Christmas Day, he would lose himself in thought. In his letter, he explains, I thought of the house in Gelsenkirchen where Peter Fuchs grew up. It was the house in which no door was ever locked until June 21st, the day I was arrested. That was the poor boy I picked up on my way back from vacation. Without beating around the bush, I saw immediately that the little one had lost his way in Essen and didn't know where to turn. I took advantage of that immediately. 
The boy hadn't eaten since morning and I could still see his face beaming with happiness when I offered to help him. That should have touched me for heaven's sake. That's what I say to myself today and that's what I said to myself then. But at that stage, nothing could hold me anymore. Nothing could pity me anymore. You could then, and I'm serious, only compare me to a predator that already had his victims in its claws. Such a predator dies before releasing its prey. I too would have died in time rather than take a single step back. It was completely different when I thought about it afterwards. Yes, then I was aware of what I was and also called myself that. But woe betides me if I drove down that street again and saw boys. Then it was over with the regret, with the pain, even with the pity and the crying. It was terrible crying because it was pointless, because it could not help me or the children. Yes, it was pointless, but it hurt much more than normal weeping, for I was aware of the cruel fact that some of the tears were shed beforehand. I had to force myself not to think that Peter Fuchs's father would have bought the long-awaited soccer ball and soccer shoes for his boy's return. But if you have a conscience and a heart, as long as you can think normally, you cannot ignore it. Yes, I saw little Ulrich sitting in the car next to me and I heard him say, No, I don't want any money from you, of course not. You've already spent so much on me at the fair. The most terrible thing, the last minute of 11-year-old Manfred. How he opened his eyes again and asked me, yes, asked me, without hate, without pain and without fear. And I looked into his eyes and found something in them that I will never, ever understand. Forgiveness, even pity for me. And that confirms his weak question. Are you going to prison now? And then he took his last breath and died. I only know that I threw myself on the stones and I howled like a snob. For how long? I don't know exactly. Are you crying now? Me too. You know, when I'm not in control of my instincts, which hasn't stopped in here either, I always find myself desperately wanting to be able to talk to children, to ask their forgiveness. But I've spoiled that for myself now forever. And this torments me from day to day and it will never stop. I would so like to ask the only boy who is still alive, not for mercy, but for forgiveness. But I have to deny myself that too. Good heavens, how this must sound to you. Yours, Jürgen. It was Mother's Day, the 8th of May, 1966. Jürgen's family didn't go to visit his grandmother on that Sunday as they usually did. 12-year-old Manfred Grassmann disappeared without a trace. He had been lured by Jürgen to his air raid shelter, Den. Manfred was expected home after he went to the parish fair in Essen, Schonebeck. There, he tied the boy to a post and butchered the child while he was screaming without first killing him. In the final moments of his life, Manfred opened his eyes and asked Jürgen, are you going to prison now? And then he took his last breath and died. Jürgen cut open and emptied Manfred's stomach and chest cavity. Manfred's four younger brothers later told the police about a young man who had given them all a lot of money at the fair and he told Manfred that he still had something important to do and could he help him. When the police asked what it was that the man needed to do, the brothers said that it was a secret between Manfred and the young man. All of Jürgen's victims have been lured to the cave in the same way as each other, with only the slightest difference in MOs for each case. The purpose of getting them to the cave was to molest and rape them, humiliate them, beat and strangle them, and ultimately end their young lives. 
In each case, the method of the actual murder was severe beating and strangulation. He would dismember most of his victims, pricking out their eyes, decapitating them and removing their genitals. On a number of occasions, he unsuccessfully attempted anal intercourse with his victims. Meanwhile, media reports were circulating and they were leaving nothing to the imagination. It was a serial killer. Numerous appeals for information were being published in newspapers and parents were begging the newspapers in Cologne for help, both with finding their children, but also finding the kidnapper. Things started to change. Parents weren't letting their children out to play in the streets alone. Jürgen believed all along that he was just out at the wrong time, and of course, this didn't really put an end to his deeds. He was still able to find children out and about. Jürgen described the cutting and smelling of the flesh of his victims as a kind of sexual power lust. He said that it had a lot to do with sexuality, as much as it had to do with malicious exercise of power. It made him feel like he was the king. Over time, Jürgen would go further with his fantasies when taking apart his victims. But in his interrogation, he said that ripping out the intestines in particular was there from the first time. He said that he had to do it with sadism and torment, but since the child was already dead, he didn't understand why. Destroying the body as completely as possible played a major role in his fantasies. After undressing the children, he would often hurriedly tear his own clothes from his body. He said that he was in ecstasy while everything was still warm and steaming. He was asked whether he would have done the same if he hadn't been a butcher, and he answered he probably wouldn't have, but he didn't know because he was a butcher. They also asked if maybe he would have liked to be a pathology assistant or similar. However, his affliction was age-related, so he said he probably wouldn't have wanted to do that. Mr. Paul Moore went to visit Jürgen's parents after a letter from Jürgen in March 1968. It was the one and only time that he visited them because later he was told he was no longer welcome there. During his visit, he noted that the apartment was sterile and clinically clean and tidy, just as Jürgen had described many times before. Mr. Barsh had set up a vending machine so customers could buy sausages from him at any time. He also noted that when he told the Barsh parents about a book that had been written about Jürgen, they wanted to read it, but it took them a significantly long time to find a piece of paper to write the name down. Eventually, they used invoices and a pencil from the butcher shop. Peter Frieser was 15 years old. As a blonde, he wasn't particularly Jürgen's type per se. The boy was scared. Jürgen knew that he was an easy target. In his letters, he writes that the boy covered himself up and this drove him into a frenzy and a rage. While hitting him, he yelled, Well, you asshole, defend yourself. But the entire time, Peter said, No, no. Jürgen said how much he was excited by the idea that Peter might actually put up a fight against him, even though generally it was the helplessness of children that was an incentive. He didn't believe that if Peter had defended himself that he would have stood a chance against Jürgen. While Peter was tied up, Jürgen tried to kiss him. It wasn't particularly part of his plan, it was a spur of the moment thing. He felt the desire and he followed through with it. He'd never kissed Victor or Detlef before. It was new to Jürgen and he enjoyed it. He did have a moment though where he thought Peter was only kissing him because of how frightened he was and because he'd been so brutally beaten moments before. But when he stopped, Peter said, go on, continue, 
which took Jürgen by surprise. Later, on reflection in his letters, he wrote, If the alternative was to be kicked in the testicles from behind, I know which I would have preferred. When Peter was standing before him fully naked, Jürgen had briefly started to masturbate, and then he thought he would rather do it to Peter first. He started to manipulate Peter's genitals, but nothing happened. Jürgen became furious with him and said, Well, can't you get it up? Peter said that he could, but Jürgen turned his attention to his own genitals again and then decided that he would hit the boy and humiliate him. He beat him repeatedly. Jürgen said during interrogation that his ultimate goal was for Peter to be slowly tortured to death and then remove the skin from his body completely. Suddenly, Jürgen asked Peter what the time was. He knew that he was due to be home by 7pm for dinner, bathing from his mother and TV time with his parents. So he left Peter tied up in the cave. Jürgen was going to take the candles, but Peter told him that he was afraid of the dark. Jürgen wanted him to feel comfortable, so he left the candles for him. While he was gone, Peter used the candles that Jürgen had left to burn the ties on his hand. The first candle accidentally went out, but he was able to use the second candle to burn the ties until they gave way and was able to break out and escape. When Jürgen returned to the cave later, he found that Peter was gone. He said he was extremely disappointed. He stood still, rooted in place for a few moments, thinking to himself, this couldn't be true. For a moment he thought, what is he going to do now? Did he go to the police? But as he stood there in the cave, he said all he could feel above everything else was helpless disappointment. That was a Saturday. The following Monday, Jürgen went to Mulheim to look for more boys. He found two young children around 10 years old. They were together, but he only wanted to take one with him. The boys said to Jürgen, if we go with you, we're going together. Jürgen offered them one Deutschmark each and said, if one of you come with me, I will give you 20 marks that you can share with each other later. He told them to think about it and he briefly walked away. After a moment or two, he returned to the boys, but they declined saying that they were happy with their Deutschmark each. On Tuesday, June 21st, 1966, police arrested Jürgen Barsch. Now, just quickly, every single source that I went to for researching this case believed that Jürgen was arrested on the 22nd. However, his own letters and his lawyers and a letter to his lawyer, in particular the one dated November 4th, 1966, all say that he was arrested on the 21st. After his arrest, while the police were conducting a search of the air raid shelter, they found the cotton balls. The investigator asked Jürgen if he had used them to sedate the boys so that they didn't feel much pain. Lying, Jürgen said that he did. He said later that he said that only to make things seem less bad than they really were. When Jürgen was arrested, he was just 19 years, 5 months and 15 days old. He openly confessed to his crimes immediately. His trial, the first one, began November 29, 1967. His story was so unbelievable that people believed he was making it up. In July of 1967, Jürgen finally reproached his parents, if only in writing. He sent them the letter that read, You never should have cut me off from other children. I was just a cowardly dog at school like that. You should never have sent me to those sadists in black coats and after I ran away because the priest had abused me, you should never have brought me back there. But you didn't know that. 
Mummy, you should never have put the sex education book that Aunt Marthea, his father's sister, was supposed to give me in the oven when I was 11 or 12. Why haven't you played with me once in 20 years? But maybe all this could have happened to other parents too. For you at least, I was a wished for child. Even if I haven't noticed anything about it for 20 years, only today when it's too damn late. Yours, Jürgen. His first trial, which took place in 1967 in the High Court in the small city of Wuppertal, was decided that Jürgen should be tried as an adult. The court considered that Jürgen was fully sane. He was sentenced to five life sentences, 125 years, for four murders, one attempted murder, abduction of children, and sexual contact with a child. At the time, homosexuality was still a crime in Germany, however, the matter was never brought up at trial. A motion for appeal, naturally, was lodged. The defence said that the defendant was not sufficiently assessed and that he was in the developmental stages of a juvenile and therefore not psychologically responsible for his crimes. A number of experts were called to testify. The case was revised and a second trial was held in 1971. Ultimately, the maximum sentence was overturned and the maximum sentence for juveniles was imposed, which was 10 years to be served in a mental institution, followed by rehabilitation in a preventative facility, basically a nursing home. During his trial, Jürgen had attempted suicide a number of times by cutting his wrists with a shard that he'd broken out of a cell toilet. He was being checked every 10 minutes by guards, but some, somehow he had managed to carve more than one suicide letter into the wall with a screw. His first letter was addressed to Peter Frieser. I've translated the letter and it's available for free on Patreon. The next letter was to the parents of the children that he'd murdered and it said, Dear parents of the children, I have taken from you what you loved most on earth. I ask you, please forgive me. I have so many regrets. Please take consolation when I say that I wasn't able to celebrate last Christmas or any other festival. Rightly so, of course. I kept going, of course, but my nerves probably couldn't have held out much longer. Please have a little understanding and forgiveness for me. Please, please. One more thing. In my entire life, I have never been glad or happy for even a second. I always knew how I was and I never fought against it myself. Other letters on the wall were to his own parents, the police who handled the arrest and the investigation, the guards at the jail, his lawyer and his friend Paul Moore. His friend Victor was sentenced to a prison sentence of 10 months for sexual offences and commercial fornication. He moved away from the area and was later living in Bavaria. Detlef Duren was also sentenced in 1967 for violating an old Section 175, basically for homosexuality, sexual offences and commercial indecency. In 1971, Jürgen's story takes a strange twist. He was about to meet Gisela, a disabled nurse who had been writing to him for quite a while. Her interest in Jürgen had started in 1966, when she was just 16 years old and he had been arrested. He was starting to appear in the newspapers. She would collect every article and newspaper piece about Jürgen. At first, she admits that she didn't really believe the story of Jürgen. She actually thought that he was crazy. It was when she read that Jürgen had confessed to a priest of his first crime in the confessional that she felt touched and developed an affection for him. 
She felt that the priest he had confessed to should have done more to help Jürgen at the time. Instead, she was upset that he had heard this horrific confession and did nothing to help him. When it was reported that Jürgen Barsch was in solitary confinement, Gisela felt the urge to write to him. She felt a strong need, a duty to reach out to him and try to help. Gisela wrote him three letters before Jürgen sent a reply. The reply was short and to the point, and it read, Dear Miss Dyker, After reading your letters, I don't feel any need to correspond with you. Sincerely, Jürgen Barsch. This didn't deter Gisela. She continued to write. Obviously, her persistence touched Jürgen, and the two began to exchange letters. In January 1973, once Jürgen had been moved to the state psychiatric hospital Rotland near Eichelborn near Lippstadt, finally the two met for the first time in person. The first visit was short, overwhelming to Gisela even after being told what it would be like there. After a week they met again. Unfortunately, the pair were irritated by a nurse who decided to sit down at the table with them during their meeting and she said it became awkward. On the third visit, February 15, 1973, Jürgen asked Gisela to become his wife. At the time, she asked for four weeks to think about it, to which Jürgen agreed. After the four weeks had passed, she returned to Jürgen and she said yes to the marriage. Gisela's parents did not react well to this news, and initially, Gisela was afraid of public reaction, as well as worrying that she may lose her job. She was still in a probationary period, and although they couldn't fire her for getting married, she did say that if someone wanted to get rid of her, they would find a way, and during a probationary period, it was okay. On the 2nd of January 1974, Jürgen and Gisela were married at the Eichelborn Hospital. Her parents and siblings refused to come. The doctors at the hospital had advocated for the marriage and deemed that it was an important contribution to Jürgen's healing. For example, the sexual normalization of their patient. They even went as far as telling the couple that they would have an opportunity to consummate their marriage either on or shortly after their wedding day. It never eventuated, however, because the hospital turned around and determined that it actually would be unfair for the other patients to allow them to do so. Gisela said in interviews that she wanted to help Jürgen, and the only way that she knew how to do that was to be his wife. She commented that whenever she would ask information from doctors, they wouldn't give it to her as his friend or fiancé, so logically the answer was to marry him. With Gisela's assistance, Jürgen had previously refused to consider it, but eventually changed his mind and made requests for castration. All of his requests were rejected by the courts, Castration was only available as an option if the offender asked for it and there were good practical reasons. On April 28, 1976, Barsh was finally on the operating table about to have his castration procedure. He died after there was an error in the drugs given to him as anaesthetic. Subsequently, the doctor who administered the drug had killed other patients in the same way and he was sentenced to nine months probation. Jürgen was buried in a family plot at the Friedhof Daltmerken in Baden, Germany. His parents continued to run their butcher shop and lived in the village until their deaths. Although there have been many other serial killers who committed crimes more gruesome and heinous than those of Jürgen Barsch, for some reason he was one of the most famous and most reported in German criminal history. His case, though, is a true reflection of how important the first years of a child's development is critical in their psychological moulding. 
Jürgen killed because he didn't want to be killed. He punished because he didn't want to be punished. Jürgen's victims were Klaus Jung, eight years old, 1961. Peter Fuchs, 13 years old, 1965. Ulrich Weiss, 10 years old, 1965. Manfred Grassmann, 8 years old, 1966. And Ernst Peter Friese, 15 years old, who escaped, 1966. That brings us to the end of another episode. I hope that you've enjoyed learning about Jürgen and his crimes. Thank you for joining me. Don't forget to check out our website, veritastruecrime.com, for more information about what's coming up or to get in touch. If you've got access to Facebook, please stop by and like our page and maybe leave a five-star review if you're enjoying the show so far. I hope that you'll join us again for another episode. Remember, the truth is mighty and will prevail. Until next time, friends.